Costello. I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Habit, if you're the coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I, mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem, they give these ball players nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and... His brother Daffy. Daffy Dean. I'm their French cousin. French? Gouffet. Gouffet Dean. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, let's see. We have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second... Hello again, everybody. This is Rich Martin coming to you with the podcast, uh, Life in Baseball, Life in General. I hope everybody's doing well. This is the ninth inning, and uh, it'll be, uh, we're going into extra innings if God wants, because after this, uh, we're going to continue to name our episodes by innings. So hopefully we'll be going into the 20s, 30s, and so on. As I mentioned before, baseball is the only game that continues. There's no time limit. So theoretically, we can uh, play forever, and that's what I hope we'll be able to do. I wanted to thank everybody for the tremendous response. We uh, we had our inaugural um, um, podcast set up for the uh, middle of February, and we went on the air. We had uh, we had uh, put in the books, so to speak, six, as Howie Rose would say, put it in the books, uh, six uh, podcasts. And um, we started with those, and uh, we added uh, the seventh. Um, we're up to seven now. We have eight in the um, in the tank, I guess you'd say, and uh, the ninth uh, we're doing now. The response has been unbelievable. People I haven't heard from in years, people who played for me at Bishop Bloglin in the 70s, uh, Hofstra, uh, people from, uh, of course, from Ramapo, uh, guys from Dominican. Uh, it's been unbelievable. People from OLG, from Our Lady of Guadalupe, have been calling. I mean, the response, uh, we've had hundreds of hits. Uh, we're up to about 500 now, and I- I'm I- I'm so thrilled and blessed that people are finding this to be entertaining. I hope it continues to be. If, if it doesn't, please let me know. You can reach me um at uh, ramapo35 at gmail.com. Before we begin, I wanted to throw a commercial for the All-Star Cigar Company. We've had some nice business um, since people have heard about it. You can go to the website um, at allstarcigarco.com, allstarcigarco.com. We have the cheapest cigars on the Internet, the best and the cheapest. Uh, We'll get them right out to you. Um, and, uh, if you have any questions, there's a phone number, uh, the email is info at allstarcigarco.com. So please, um, if you get a chance, go and check it out. Uh, it's, they're the cheapest cigars you can find. I mean, the best brands, but the least expensive. And, um, they have a special going where there's no tax charged and there's no shipping. So right off the bat, you beat every price with that right off the bat. And then they're they're, they're discounted uh, to be uh, much less than uh, anywhere else, uh, including the big uh, cigar um, online brands. So, well, please check it out, uh, allstarcigarco.com. I wanted to talk today. Um, there's a great story. Um, I, I'm not sure how to how to you know uh, finish it because it is a little, I guess you'd say blue, but it involves. Uh, a camp 
and it involves. Uh, oh, you know, before we start, let me. Somebody wrote me, and they um, they wanted to know why I chose number thirty-five. I've worn number thirty-five since my days at Our Lady of Guadalupe, and somebody wanted to know why. Uh, now, originally, when I was a kid, I uh, wore number four when I played the great uh, Duke Snyder, the um, the Duke of Flatbush. Um, the Brooklyn Dodgers were my team. I lived in Brooklyn. Maybe one of the greatest days of my life is when my mom and dad took me to Ebbets Field. And, you know, you walk up uh, onto the field, you walk up through the, um, you know, through those uh, hallways, and then you actually get onto the field in this in- enormous green pasture. Hit you right in the eye. I'll never forget it. I remember it as it was yesterday. And um, I went to see the Dodgers play. Um, I'll talk more about that. It's a great story I have about Jackie Robinson. But um, anyway, so I won number four. And then what happened was the Dodgers left, as everybody knows, and went to Los Angeles with the Giants. And that was uh, 1957. And we were heartbroken. I mean, they were they were pissed in Brooklyn. They, Walter O'Malley, who was the owner of the team, uh, who decided to leave with Horace Stoneham, who was the owner of the Giants, who went to San Francisco, uh, they they had, uh, I mean, I'd walk out of my house and they'd be a, a dummy hanging from a tree with, with um, the name, with um, O'Malley's name on the uh, on the dummy that they hung him because he left Brooklyn. It was really bad. So my dad um, would take me to, uh, God bless him, would take me to Connie Mack Stadium in Philadelphia to watch the Dodgers play. Well, that was the closest to Brooklyn. And we went a couple of times a year. We drive to Philly, and uh, we go to Connie Mack, and we watch the Dodgers play. And I got to see Duke, and some of the other Gil Hodges, who just got into the Hall of Fame. Good for him; he deserves it. And some of the other um, great Dodgers uh, of the time. Um, so um, that's what was going on. So I was about what was I? It was. So the Dodgers left, I was about uh, 9, 8 or 9, 10, like that. So I was really getting into it and um, into baseball. And um, something happened that changed uh, the way I looked at things. So I was into the Dodgers. I was um, having to follow them from Los Angeles. Um, And, uh, you know, Duke had a problem in L.A. because of uh, they played at at the um, Los Angeles Coliseum which wasn't a, a baseball field, it was a football field, still is. Well, now I, now I hear that it uh, has auto races in it. Anyway, uh, the field was all screwed up, and he didn't, wasn't able to hit too many home runs. He wound up with 411 home runs and was a part of the great uh, uh, golden era of baseball in New York when we had the three great center fielders, Willie Mays, for the um, for the Giants, Mickey Mantle for the Yankees, and Duke for the Dodgers. Matter of fact, uh, I had always planned on having three dogs, and uh, I only had two because uh, losing them was too much to handle. But my first dog was a black lab named Duke, and my second dog was a yellow lab named Mickey. And I haven't gotten that last lab uh, yet. Um, for Willie Mays, maybe someday I will. But anyway, something happened in 1961 that I thought was really cool. 
and it got my attention, and that was the um, the tremendous uh, fight for the home run lead between Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle with the New York Yankees. And um, the Yankees won the World Series that year. Maris wound up hitting 61 at the expense of his hair falling out and all the pressure that was on him. Mantle wound up with, I think, 54 or 56. He hurt himself towards the end. Uh, one of the great calls, if you get a chance to hear it, is Phil Rizzuto wholly cowing his way into your hearts when he calls Maris's 61st home run. Of course, there's an asterisk next to Maris because um, he did it in 162 games when um, uh, Babe Ruth did it in 154 games. But it still was great until uh, uh, Barry, uh, Bobby Bonds came along and Socia and uh, Mark McGuire. Let's not even talk about that because it gets me sick. Although I don't blame the players as much as I blame the owners. But we'll talk about that another day. Um, anyway, so during this, so I got to watch the Yankees. I, you know, the Dodgers weren't on regularly, but the Yankees were on WPIX. And I watched all their games in this great struggle. And the manager of the Yankees in 61 and after that as well, he had taken over for Casey Stengel, who eventually wound up being the first manager of the Mets, was Ralph Halk. And Ralph Halk was a um, a tough guy, uh, an ex-Marine. They called him the Major, and he uh, smoked cigars and and you know was loud and boisterous. And I sort of liked that. I was a big cigar smoker. I had started smoking cigars when I'm 16. I still smoke one every night after dinner. And um, I got a kick out of him when he was interviewed and. And he was on anyway. The Yankees went on to win um, the World Series, and uh, Maris hit 61, set the new record. And uh, Ralph Houck's number was number 31. I wasn't going to wear number nine that Maris wore, and I wouldn't dare wear number seven. Although I didn't idolize Mickey Mandel because he was the enemy, I respected him uh, very much, and and one of the great players of all time, and an incredible favorite in New York. I mean. People to this day uh, worship him, Mickey Mantle, um, a great player. Um, When people started making a lot of money in baseball, hundreds of thousands of dollars back then was a lot of money. Uh, And Mantle was getting towards the end of of his career. He he made a statement that if if he knew that they were going to be paying that much money to play baseball, he would have taken better care of himself. And I wound up meeting Mickey Mantle. Um, at his restaurant uh, when I was at Hofstra uh, and and running the all-star baseball camp uh, I I uh, went on um, I went I went on uh, WFAN radio at the time with Bill Mazer Bill Mazer was a local sportscaster great guy and he had a show on FAN uh, later on I was on FAN with uh, Mike and the Mad Dog and I got to meet them and as I've mentioned um, Chris Russo was the sweetheart, couldn't uh, do enough for me. Um, Mike Francesca, Mike Francesca couldn't be bothered, but maybe he was having a bad day. Who knows? Uh, anyway, um, so uh, the the um, the interview was at Mickey Mantle's restaurant on Central Park. At Central Park, it was. Um, Scott, this is in the '90s, so I don't remember exactly when. But anyway, um, so anyway, I, I went to. Uh, 
I was all excited, and I was going to be on it. And, uh, you know, I had to wait around. They got me on the end. Robert Merrill, the great opera singer who sang the national anthem at Yankee Stadium on all the big occasions, he was the uh, the, the special guest with Mazer, and Mazer spoke to him. And then very, at the very end, <clears throat> excuse me, they introduced me, Rich Martin, as the head baseball coach at Hofstra, the Rich Martin's All-Star Camp. And, uh, and uh, I would be on at the very, very end. So I got there, uh, walked in. Uh, they, they would sit at a table in a restaurant near the window and do the interviews. And I went to the bar, and lo and behold, sitting at the bar in Mickey Mantle's restaurant was Mickey Mantle. And I, 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 my mouth was open. I, I couldn't believe it. The great Mickey Mantle. He had retired, of course, and was sitting there and... I looked at him, and he looked old, and he looked beat up, and um, he looked drunk. And uh, I went up to him, and um, I said, excuse me, Mr. Mantle, my name is Rich Martin. I'm going to be on the broadcast today. I run a baseball camp. I just want to tell you what an honor it is to meet you and to shake your hand. And I put my hand out, and Mantle turned to me and looked at me up and down, and stared at me right in my eyes and said, fuck off. I put my hand down, and I walked away with my tail between my legs, and that was the one and only time I met the Mick. Um, Did it take away from his greatness? No. Towards the end, he suffered a bit. Um, He he was an alcoholic, unfortunately, and it was sad. Uh, But it doesn't take away from the incredible player he was and the joy he gave to so many people. Anyway, I got on the uh, radio. I spoke about my um, I spoke about my uh, exploits at camp and what had happened, We were, this was in the middle of the day, so we were at practice at Hofstra. I was there and the team was practicing. Bill Major shows in the afternoon. So they knew when I was going to come back that I was going to be the man. I was like, oh, pumped to the max. Here I am. Uh, Rich Mom with Bill Mazin. I met Mickey Mantle. I wasn't going to tell him what he told me. But I was going to tell him I met him. Shook his hand. We hugged each other. Blah, 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 whatever. And uh, I get back to the field, and I'm like I'm walking on air, and uh, my, my chest is pumped out, and I can't wait to interact with the guys, the players, the coaches, and tell them what happened and so on. And they knew it. They knew I was going to be like that because that's the way I was. You know what I mean? If something happened that was great – I didn't. I don't have that type of ego. The ego I have is one where you're able to. You have an ego when you coach because you have to be able to lose, and still think you're the greatest. Still think you could lead. Still think that you can make the right decisions uh, in the spur of the moment. And so I came back and I I was all full of myself. Although I didn't really make a, a big deal, but I said, uh, how'd you do, coach? Oh, I was on with Bill Mazur. He goes, yeah, we heard it. I said, what do you mean? What they had done is they put the radio station on uh, on this loudspeaker on the field. So the guys had, uh, while they were practicing, uh, had heard me on the interview, and um, they said, oh, coach, you sounded great. You did a great job, you know, but we just want you to know um, – you know, it doesn't make a difference to us if you're a big shot. You're our coach, and we'll follow you anywhere. And I was, that was very sweet, you know, and I, I thought that was really nice. But what they did is they did something that made sure that I wouldn't uh, float my boat too much. They made sure that I'd come down to earth. 
because what they had done, unbeknownst to me and assisted by my outstanding coaches, they had taken a pair of my baseball uniform pants and put them up the flagpole to hang right underneath the American flag. Now, of course, I didn't notice it at first until finally they were all standing there looking at me as I spoke to them, and they had their heads down, and they started giggling. The flag was right behind me. The flagpole and my size 48 uh, pants. So uh, they giggled. Ultimately, I saw them staring. I turned around, and they're blowing in the wind underneath the old glory, the stars and stripes, was a pair of 48 uh, Rawlings uh, pinstripe baseball pants flying in the wind. I mean, I think they were going to, I think they, they thought that once, if it rained, they would be able to cover the field with it. That's how big they were. Anyway, uh, knocked me down to size. Everybody had a big laugh. I wanted to run their balls off, but, you know, I took it because I had met Mickey Mantle, whether he met me or not, and had been on the radio with uh, Bill Mazur. Talking about camp, um, I wanted to tell you the story of, of the great Bob Feller. Bob Feller was a Hall of Famer. He pitched for the Cleveland Indians. Bob Feller is the only pitcher in the history of baseball to ever pitch a no-hitter on opening day. A member of baseball's Hall of Fame and one of the great players of all time. And um, Bob Feller, we, we um, asked him and hired him to come to baseball camp. This was in the early days of the camp in the 80s, and Fellow was an old old man by this time. He must have been in his 70s, maybe even older. Um, and um, we had guys that come every week, as I mentioned, and they'd come for one day, and they'd talk to the kids, sign autographs, take pictures, and it was pretty cool. Uh, most of them were very relaxed. They'd come in, and uh, I met most guys wore T-shirts. Uh, well, the day that Bob Fellow came, he comes in in full Cleveland Indian uniform. He gets out of his car, and he's in full uniform. And I said, wow, and of course, an older man, you know, so he looked more like a coach or even older and um, came in. Um, we sat down uh, in my office, and at the time, well, later on I had my own office at camp, but at the beginning, to save some money, what we would do is we would take my room and, and my room turned into an office. We would have, uh, uh, the bed would be uh, covered during the day and there'd be chairs. And if a guy had to come in and, you know, uh, complain or, or um, be spoken to or whatever, that I used that as my office. I had a desk and, and there was some chairs, a couch, uh, a bedroom inside and, and, um, and a bed. And so... Uh, as I said, later on, I got my own little suite, but at the beginning, we were j- each, each one of the coaches, uh, I had my own room, but most of the coaches were two, three in a room, and the players were uh, at one time two in a room, and, and later on four in a room. Anyway, a uh, fellow comes in in full uniform, he goes on the field, and he's, he throws a couple of pitchers, and uh, you know, the thing about fellow was that, I, I don't know if you realize that he was the first guy that really threw the ball hard. I mean, he was in the hundred. He was uh, constantly 103, 104. And the famous story about Bob Feller is that he was a country boy from, um, I think, Iowa, maybe. And the thing that you, you remember about him is that they couldn't figure out at the time 
how hard he was throwing. Uh, he went to, um, uh, you know, th- there were no radar guns at that time. So uh, what they did was they lined up fella on, on, a, on a flat surface in a field, and they got a motorcycle. And, and they did it a number of times till they got it right, but the motorcycle would go past Feller and try to match up with when he released the baseball and get to the catcher. And then they would read the uh, odometer or the speedometer or whatever, and they would decide. And they, I don't know how accurate it was, and it probably wasn't too accurate, but they had Feller at 104 or 105. So he could bring it. He was... Um, he was outstanding. Um, anyway, he does his appearance, and now he's um, going to come in um, uh, to my my uh, room, and I'm going to pay him. Uh, sometimes we paid cash. Sometimes we paid checks. I don't remember how much he got, but it must have been a couple of thousand dollars uh, uh, at that point. So um, we go into the room. A couple of the kids uh, wander in because the kids would always come and hang out with me. And we'd BS, and I'd tell them stories or this or that. And everybody would check in, see what was going on. And um, I said to him, uh, all right, Bob, here's your check. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. You were great. He goes, listen, he goes, I'm gonna, I have to take this rental car back, and I'm, um, I, I'm going to take an airplane out of here. Could I, would you mind if I take a shower? Oh, I said, sure. I said, the bathroom's right there. I said, just... Um, you know, you know, do what you got to do. And uh, I said, I got to run and do some stuff. And um, hopefully I'll see you when you leave. Otherwise, thank you so much. And I shook his hand. And I and I pushed all the guys. All right, guys, uh, Mr. Fellas got some things to do. So everybody leave him alone. And uh, everybody left. And, and Fellow went into the um, bathroom to take his shower. Well, we're talking about Bob Fellow, this big country boy. Um, I don't know how sophisticated he was. Uh, I know he was a sweetheart, a great guy. He came multiple times to camp. Um, but what happened was um, I had done what I had to do. I don't remember. I had to go somewhere or do something. And I came back. And this is when we were at, uh, this was at the College of New Jersey. I came back and um, I see that the door of my room is open. I said, oh, shit. I said, the fella must have left and... And he's, uh, you know, when he left the door open, I said, you know, not that there's, I mean, such valuable stuff, but there's a lot of stuff in there, you know, that could be taken. So as I'm walking to the room, I start hearing laughter, giggling, big laughs, small laughs. And I'm saying to myself, what? And I go to the room, and of course the guys didn't know I wasn't there. They didn't know that fella was was in the uh, shower. So they had congregated back in the room, and they were all sitting there. We're talking about guys 8, 10, 12, 14. And there, were, there must have been about 20 guys sitting in the room. And, and I heard this giggling, and I went around the corner, and I looked in. And there's Bob Fella, the Hall of Famer, in a towel with his head all, hair all wet. And he's talking to these kids about baseball and, and about pitching and he's showing uh, one kid how to throw a curveball. And as he goes to throw, and I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen Bob th- a fella throw on a newsreel or a video, he, w- he would throw like, um, like Juan Marichal with a big leg kick. And so here's Bob Fella in a towel, dripping wet, come, just coming out of the shower, 
and he lifts his leg as he's pitching, and he throws uh, an imaginary baseball, you know, that he has in his hand with the proper grip, and as he follows through, his towel falls off. And there's Bob Fella, Hall of Famer, no hitter, completely naked, standing in my room with about 20 kids watching him. Well, now, Bob Fell, you know the old story they say when you, when you get older, how you start to fall and everything drops? Well, um, that happened with Bob. And so once he, his towel dropped, the room went silent. And as I walked in, as he was th- throwing his pitches, the, the, all of the, the kids in the room were transfixed on one area of his body. And this area of his body was hanging loosely. And so when he, when he started to throw again and lift his leg, they all followed his junk and looked to their left. When he started to go with his follow-through, they looked down. When he came back to his uh, starting position, they looked up. And every kid in the room's head followed him around for the next, what seemed like 10 minutes, but was probably about 10 seconds. Well, I can't begin to tell you how horrified I was. All I could think of was state penitentiary for Bob and me in the same, uh, in the same room, the same cell. I ran in. And I reached down, got the towel. I covered Bob with the towel. And, uh, and I, I said, Bob, you, you know, these are all kids in here. And he says, ah, there's nothing they haven't seen before. I said, oh, yes, there is. They've never seen anything like that before. And um, Bob Feller took his money, eventually got dressed, uh, got into his car, and, you know, I was waiting for the phone calls. I was waiting for all different types of problems. And, you know, never, ever was anything ever mentioned about it. And if I run into a kid, and I do it all the time, I run into a kid from camp and they remember that story, either they were there when it happened or they heard me tell it, they get the biggest kick out of it. Because Bob Fellow was just a regular guy and, Loved baseball and enjoyed being with children and uh, passed away um, a while ago. But uh, I have only kind and fond memories of, of, uh, of Bob. He was, uh, he was a great guy. You know, I've had such great um, people in baseball. You know, I, I was, uh, uh, and I'll say this in case he ever listens, I was associated with Johnny Franco I can't say, I think that there was an all-star, he says no, but I think there was an all-star game that uh, it might have been in the in the high school league or it could have been in Sandlot baseball or, you know, amateur baseball, but I think I coached him for a couple of games. Now, he says I never did, but when I, at one point in my resume, I would put down the, the major league players that I had coached and and. And there were quite a few, and, and I used to put him down. One day he ran into me at Shea Stadium. He said, listen, I'll let you use my name. You're one of the guys. You know, we, we grew up in Brooklyn. He went to Lafayette, and I went to New Utrecht. Um, John Franco uh, was a sweetheart, is a sweetheart. He's still associated with the Mets. He, uh, he's the, um, he has the record for most uh, 
most wins, most, I'm sorry, most uh, saves of, from a New York Met relief pitcher. He was signed originally by the Dodgers by a guy I can't remember who I was friends with. Oh, God, he was a scout in Brooklyn. I'm sorry, I'll remember his name. And um, he eventually was traded to Cincinnati and then to the Mets. Uh, when we used to bring them, you know, we would have the guys come to camp. And John came many times to camp. And um, uh, and then ultimately what happened was we would bring the camp to, to Shea Stadium. And John would uh, talk to us. He'd set us up with players. He would put us in uh, the Jets um, uh, at the time the Jets played there as well or or had played there and had left. And he put us in the Jets, the locker room. Uh, we'd go. And it was great. I mean, he was so great. We'd go on the field. Uh, Jay Horowitz, who was the director of public relations at the time, uh, they don't go on the field anymore because of, uh, I mean, they were actually doing drug deals on the field. It was, it was sad. But um, at the time, we'd go on, and uh, John was the best. Uh, whenever I do run into him, uh, there was a fellow who was a mentor of mine. His name was Patty Amador. I adored him, and he taught me so much about life and about baseball and, and uh, was a total character. And a lot of the stuff that I, I did in my career and still do to this day relate to my experiences with Patty. And the last time that I sat uh, and had a long conversation with John, I've seen him a couple of times at the dining areas at Shea and at City, but um, it was when we went to Patty's funeral. Patty died, I think he was 57 or 58. I mean, uh, uh, in tremendous shape, and uh, it was very sad. But John um, told me something one day that I always kept with me, and I've used all the time in all of the teams that I've coached, uh, uh, we had taken a group to uh, Shea Stadium. We had about 150 kids, and John spoke to us. And, at the t- and then Rex Reed, who also was a pitcher at the time, um, Rex Reed, uh, he, um, he also uh, spoke to us. And so while he was speaking, I grabbed John. And John, the night before, had uh, given up a home run to lose the game. The Mets were... Uh, the Mets were winning, and uh, he came in to close. He gave up a, a two-run homer, and the Mets ultimately lost. And um, and and I didn't know, you know. I mean, again, I didn't. I wasn't uh, his best friend, but we, we. I did know him, and I did respect him, and I was very fond of him. He was a kid from Brooklyn, and not a big guy, a guy who who was tough as nails. I I would go into the clubhouse sometimes when uh, I would speak with Bobby Valentine and. John would be loaded with tape, and I mean, every part of his body was taped. He was a legitimate warrior, and and a great, great person. And uh, anyway, so he had given up this home run the night before, and I said, John, are you okay? You know, I, I don't know what to say, uh, but uh, this is what I would say to one of my players. So I, John, are you are you okay um, after that uh, after that you know that thing last night? He goes, what thing? I said, you know, uh, the home run. He said, the home run? I said, yeah, you know, uh, the home run that uh, put Philly in front. Uh, um, uh, you know, are you okay? He says, Rich, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, what do you What do you mean? He goes, yesterday. I don't remember anything that happened yesterday. I said, you don't? He looked at me right in the eye. He said, no, I'm worried about today and what I could do to win this game for the Mets. 
And that was really cool, I thought. And I looked at him and I smiled. And I remember giving him a pat on the shoulder. I said, I got it. I got it. And even in the big leagues, when, you know, I mean, his money doesn't change when, uh, you know, when he gives up a home run. He still gets paid the same huge amount. And uh, it showed me that, um, you know, you do have to move on. One of the things that I used to do all the time with the guys, I would say to them, um, I would say to them, you know, when we had a bad game and we lost and we worked hard and we played, and, you know, when you get these games where you get crushed in the last inning. Although I have to say in my career, and, you know, it was a, it was a great career. I, I don't know the exact number, but it was like 700 and in the, in the teens, like 715 wins f- for the teams that I coached and like 502 or three losses. Uh, so the winning percentage was really great. Uh, for the teams that I coached. But that wasn't what I was thrilled about. I mean, God blessed us, and the kids worked hard, and and we were always blessed. But what I was excited about was the fact that all the teams that I coached were teams that were at the bottom. So it wasn't about the wins and losses. It was about how we handled adversity and how we rose from uh, Dominican not even having a team, a club team, Hofstra being the worst team, the worst, the worst Division I team in the nation, in the nation, and Dominic, and um, excuse me, um, and Ramapo um, had not having a winning season for 30 years, and then us going to the World Series and so on. So that's what I'm proud of. Not the wins and losses. I'm proud of going to work every day, working hard. And, and making sure that we worked as hard as we could and gave 100%. And then the, those things, um, you know, fell into it. So um, it was, it, that was great, you know. Uh, and I forgot, I have no idea where I was. I was talking about Franco, and um, I started talking about wins and losses. Oh, somebody had, somebody had written me and asked me. I got a, 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 it was a negative. Somebody said, well, if you're any good, did you ever win any ball games? So um, to that person, I was uh, uh, a big slugger, I think, or hot slugger or something like that. Um, to hot slugger, uh, yeah, we, we won a couple of games. We won a bunch of championships. Uh, we had a bunch of guys go to the big leagues, but that wasn't what, what, what I'm most proud of. I'm proud of taking teams that were not so good and making them great. Of course, I never hit a ball, never stole a base, that's for sure. Um, My great players and my great coaches accomplished all of these goals, and I was in there as well. Um, I wanted to mention again about um, All-Star Cigar. Uh, If you want to write us, it's info at allstarcigarco.com. There's a phone number, which I don't have in front of me. And if you want to go to the website, it's allstarcigarco.com. There's one other thing that I wanted to talk about, and and I'll mention it um, uh, quickly. Um, I had talked previously about um, what the response was um, to, uh, you know, to people uh, listening to the podcast. Well, what's happening is, Guys that played for me and guys that that, uh, that I know 
uh, sending me all types of suggestions for, you know, talking about this and talking about that on the podcast. Most of the suggestions are unbelievably great, and I've included them in my roster of things I'm going to talk about. But along with each suggestion is a suggestion that they come on and, and be my guest and talk as well. And you know what? That's absolutely what I'm going to do. So what's going to happen in the next, um, you know, I don't know, month or so, or as we move along, I have to figure out exactly how to do it. We're going to start to bring on some guests, guys that were there, guys that have their own stories, uh, guys that can uh, validate what I've said or disprove it. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get some of that. But it's, it's I, I promise you, it's a, a, a host of characters that you've never heard uh, before. A host of characters that you'll get the biggest kick out of. The guys growing up from Brooklyn, the great players that I, I coached, my coaches over the years, administrators. Um, it, there are going to be some great, great guests on. You're going to have a lot of fun. And uh, you think I'm crazy? Wait till you talk to somebody. Wait to hear some of these guys talk. So thank you so much for listening again. Again, this is episode number nine. Thanks to Abbott and Costello. If you want to um, hear the entire routine of Abbott and Costello, who's on first, we played in its entirety at the end of inning number five. Thanks. Be well, and I'll see you soon.